Hey guys, Pastor Bear here. Welcome to the podcast for Real Church. We meet every Sunday at 11.15 a.m. at the Worship Center on the campus of Central Christian School in Sherpsburg. You can also check us out online at www.realchurchcoweta.com or jump on Facebook at Real Church Coweta. I hope you enjoy this week's message. So you're in the series called Game Changer. Barry sent me a text, or actually he called me a few weeks ago and said, hey, here's your passages of Scripture. And, uh, you know, most of the time when you have a guest speaker come in, you kind of give them the, the, the Scriptures you really don't want to preach from. So this morning we're preaching about loving your enemies and forgiving people who do things that are not so nice towards you. Barry, getting me to preach on this, was not so nice, something towards me, but I will, I will forgive him. If you think about it, most of the time, you know, when people make reference to the Bible, especially non-Christians, one of the things they know is the fact that Christians are supposed to love their enemies and not be so judgmental and forgive people, or really essentially forgive the people who are unlovable, which is not always an easy thing to do. But in this series entitled Game Changer, or Game Changers, you're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew's chapter 5 through chapter 7, and it takes the words of Jesus, and it's this long, long sermon by Jesus, and he outlines all these different issues that we must deal with, uh, things that the law had said to be true, and things that the Jews had understood to be true for a long time, many, many years, and now Jesus has come on the scene, and he's delivering this Sermon on the Mount, and he's turning everything upside down. Therefore, everything that Jesus is saying is a game changer of what, how things used to be, right? Because how things used to be were broken, and they weren't good. So what, what, what he was doing is he was taking the law that provided justice and maintained order. And so you take, like today, in today's world, there's a lot of similarities. In today's world, you have police officers who control theft and domestic abuse and speeding, right? One of the first things my dad taught me uh, when it comes to speeding, he didn't teach me how to speed. He taught me how to get around speeding, and yellow light means speed up before it turns red, right? But he said if you slam on brakes, the front of the car goes down. When you see a cop, has anyone ever been speeding? You saw a cop, slammed on brakes, Front, nobody, no one, no one, no one. The front of your car dips down, right? You slam on brakes, right? But to play it cool, what you do is you just get off the, get off the gas, get off the brakes, don't touch anything. Let the cards fall however they may land. If he gets you, he gets you. And while everyone else is taking a nosedive onto the asphalt, you're playing it cool, and you're like, you know what, dude, I wasn't speeding. Forget that. You know. But the law is to help us not speed, so that encourages not to speed so that we don't get ourselves injured or someone else injured. Does that make sense? Right? And some of the laws in the New Testament and the Old Testament were kind of the same way, right? The laws were made uh, to, to keep us safe, right? So uh, retail stores don't have to worry about being robbed every single night because there's law, there's order, there's, there's that sort of thing. The law is not perfect, nor was it perfect then, neither is it perfect now, and I think we can all agree on that. Lawyers today, uh, and really the whole law system, uh, they are able to get around situations and get people out of situations, even though sometimes they're guilty, they're able to get people out of situations because you can use the law against the law to make it work. Does that make sense? Uh, But what the law doesn't do is it doesn't look at the heart. 
The Old Testament law didn't look at the heart. It was just simply eye for an eye. You've heard that before. Leviticus 24 verses 19 through 20 says this. If a man inflicts a permanent injury on his neighbor, whatever he has done is to be done to him. This is in the Bible, by the way. I'm not making this up. This is not Barry chapter 24. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he inflicted on the person, the same is to be inflicted on him. Has anyone ever read that in the Bible before? I promise you it's in there. Leviticus 24, 19 and 20. The same is to be inflicted on him. The punishment was striving to take place of whatever that person did for you. Eye for an eye. He did this to me. I'm going to do this to him. He poked me in the eye, I'm going to poke him back. He knocked me in the eye for dating his girlfriend or whatever, I'm going to knock him back, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. They write country songs about it. I think Charlie Daniels did or, or whatever that other guy is. Um, they write songs about it, right? Punishment was, was what made most sense. When Jesus came to fulfill the law, he said, you know what? I get it. I get it that when somebody does something to you, you want to you enforce or you want to... You put that same pressure or that same punishment on someone else. But what Jesus is saying is he's saying, uh, I get that. That's the law. My Father in heaven, our Father in heaven made that law. It's in the Bible. But what I'm telling you is there's another component to it. Now that I've come, we're under the new covenant. We're under this new law. And now this law looks at, not only does it look at the situation, but it looks at the heart, right? And by this time they're thinking, well, thank goodness, didn't that what our country needs today is a law system that looks at the heart. The reality is, we do. We have it. It's just nobody gives a crap. You understand? You follow me? It's a sad thing. This series is a game changer because the law which was once broken is made complete, but not without adjustments on our part. So this morning, we're going to read from uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. It's two sections of text, so if you want to pull out your Bible. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Here's verse 38. It's the, the, the title of the, of the text is Go the Second Mile. You have heard that it was said, eye for, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, just what we just read in Leviticus 24. But I tell you, don't resist an evil do, doer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you, take your shirt and take, take away your shirt. Let him have your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Here's the second section of text, verse 43 and following. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's the game changer. So that you may be children of your father in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and, and the good, and sends the rain, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven. Heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Real Church Coweta. I thank you that the mission of this church is to uh, disciple the folks who know you and to reach out and to um, uh, help save the people who or help, help people who don't know you to come to know you. We thank you uh, for Barry's leadership, Lynn's leadership, and Miranda. 
And uh, Father, we just, we just pray for blessings over this church. We pray for blessings over this sermon series that you've laid on Pastor Barry's heart. Father, we thank you for Matthew chapter 5. Father, when uh, we look at the Bible, uh, we see 66 different books. But Father, when we see the Gospels, we're often presented with many words that come directly from your mouth, the words in red. And so, Father, the words that we just read are words that are in red, and they are words that are to be taken seriously, and they are, and they are words that really give us an example of, of what to do about your perspective, most importantly. And Father, let that be our focus this morning, is your perspective uh, on this situation and on this nearly impossible task to love unlovable people. We love you so much. In your name I pray. Amen. The Spirit has laid on my heart three different things from this text that I believe can help us in our pursuit to love other people who tend to be unlovable to, uh, and, and to forgive people who have wronged us. Here's the first one, and these are all from Christ's perspective. Here's the first one. Christ's perspective clarifies the command to love the unlovable. Christ's perspective clarifies the command to love the unlovable. Why? Because it examines the heart. Not only does it examine the situation, but it examines the heart. In the first section of the text, verses 38 through 42, it gives us four examples of unlovable people, right? Somebody who wants to slap you in the cheek. Has anyone had that happen to them recently? No. Okay. Somebody who wants to sue you. I'm not going to ask. That's a little personal. Has anyone asked you to go one mile with them besides Forrest Gump? Anybody? No? Y'all are quiet this morning. What about, here's a good one, somebody who wants to borrow from you. Yeah, yeah. That's not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, when we, when we look at that from, from, uh, from like, you know, our initial stance on this take, you know, our initial take on this text is, you know, yeah, well, I, people borrow from me all the time. That's not necessarily something that's bringing me down. I think what the scripture is referring to is a moocher. You know what I'm talking about? A moocher. Yeah. Verses 43 through 44 in the other part refers to enemies, and of course those folks are unlovable. But we must see this, like, like everything else from the Sermon on the Mount, one of the reasons why this whole section of text is in red is because Jesus wants us to see this stuff from his perspective. And his perspective comes from the Heavenly Father, therefore it is the most important perspective. But Jesus' perspective on loving your enemies and forgiving people parallels the perspective of a parent. So bear with me for a second. I'm going to give you some scenarios. Parents want other people to forgive their children. You follow me? Most of us are parents in here. Uh, I have two little heathen redheaded children in the, in the nursery area, and uh, I get it. It's tough. I definitely want other people to forgive my children. You know what I mean? Parents want other people to forgive their children. Last time I was here was in July, and Harper was acting like a fool, from what I understand. Kip and Bonnie had him in the nursery. Shelby was being a little angel. Harper was trying to aggravate her. Shelby looked at Kip and Bonnie as if, hey, you need to do something about him. He's getting on my nerves. Harper, and then, and then Kip threatened him by saying, hey, you know, I'm going to go get your daddy out of church if you don't start behaving. And, Barry, and Kip, please forgive me if I get this story wrong, but, Barry, but, but Harper then in turn told him, I want to see Uncle Barry right now. 
They call, my kids call Barry Uncle Barry. Why? I don't know. You want to hear another funny story about Barry? Barry came to my house the other day, left his Jeep in the driveway. We pulled up the driveway, or Tiffany and the kids pulled up the driveway. Barry and I went somewhere else. We pulled up the driveway, and, and Harper said, Mommy, Daddy left, or uh, Uncle Barry left his Barbie Jeep in the driveway. <laughs> in Barbie Jeep. His Barbie Jeep. He is never going to let me come back here <laughs> to your church ever again. His Barbie Jeep. But back in July, Harper wanted to see Uncle Barry. Uncle Barry's the one in charge here. By gosh, Kip, I want to talk to him because you're not going to tell me what to do, right? If Kip still held that grudge against me, that would make me pretty upset. Like, okay, your kid's acting like a fool. He's a little turd in the words of Kip Durden. He's a little turd, and he is a little turd. But here's the deal. Parents want other people to forgive their children. Our kids, in the past, it, haven't, it didn't last very long because we didn't tolerate it, but they had, we had, they had the issue of biting, right? If, you know, Harper and Shelby both, have, they've bitten other kids at New Hope Preschool where they go New Hope South. We live in Sonoy, so it's just right down the road. And, you know, I, I don't, like, I want other people to forgive my ch- kids when they mess something up, right? When they bite. If they don't know any better, if they do know better, that's a different story. But nonetheless, we, you parents want other people to forgive their children because other, their children are going to mess up, right? And it's not always a good situation. In the same respect, Jesus wants other people to forgive his children. You follow me? Jesus wants other people to forgive his children, just like you want other people to forgive your children when they mess up. Here's another scenario. Parents want their children to forgive other people. People are going to wrong your children. Your children are going to wrong other people. But in this context, parents want their children to forgive other people because when, they, when, when, when other people do something wrong to their child, to, to your child, you, want, you, don't, you don't want your child to harness bitterness. You may be just as angry at that person as your child is, but in the long run, the last thing we want in our children's hearts is bitterness, right? It parallels, it parallels with, with, with Jesus' perspective. Jesus wants his children to forgive other people. The last thing he wants in our hearts is bitterness. Parents want their children to get along with others as much as possible, Right? One of the things that we do, Tiffany has school in LaGrange in the mornings, and so now I have the responsibility. Tiffany had to teach me how to do Shelby's hair. I'm like, dude, I, I, it's bad. Okay, it's bad. Daddy, you're hurting my hair. Okay, sorry. What, you know, whatever. So, but like, so we're on our way to school. We're on our way to school. They start around 9, so around 8.55 or so, we're in the car, and we'll, I'll say, hey, who wants to say their prayer on the way to school? Shelby will usually be the first one, and, and, and she'll pray for the day. Harper, he, he wants to repeat a prayer after me, and then I'll say a prayer for both of them together. And one of the prayers, one of the things that I try to incorporate in the prayer every day is, uh, and Harper, you know, they'll repeat after me, I'll say, you know, Jesus, help, help Shelby and Harper to get along with their friends. Help their friends to be nice to them and help them be nice to their friends. Help them to be respectful to their teachers, on and on it goes. I want my kids to get along with other people as much as possible. People get on your nerves. Uh, People in authority may be unfair. But in the long run, you want your children to get along with other people. Jesus wants us to get along with other people, his children, as much as possible. Parents want their children to live above ordinary lives. 
right? One of the wishes that, that most every parent has for their child is, I want you to go just as far as I've made it in life, plus some more, right? Plus some more. Jesus, you can't go plus more with Jesus, but Jesus wants you to live above ordinary lives, and it kind of ties in with point number three. But listen to this quote. Others need our love the most when they deserve it the least. Has anyone ever heard that before? Others need our love the most when they deserve it the least. Because that's something by nature, that's something we want to do that, that, that's really backwards, right? It's really backwards. And, the, and this quote came from a marriage book, The Love Dare. And, you know, in, in the context of marriage, when your spouse is acting like a jerk and you don't want them to and they're making you mad because of the way they're acting and you think they're out of line, whatever, sometimes you fire back at them telling them how ridiculous they are when in reality what they need from you the most is love, not correction, right? What they need from you is love and not correction. And if you're anything like me, I have, I have or, you know, or trying to fix the problem, I, me, you know, I would just fire off and I would say things that I probably shouldn't have said that they were mean and hurtful or whatever. And then it hit me. This quote would hit me because I read this quote several years ago. Others need our love the most when they deserve it the least. And once you start firing off all this nasty stuff to someone when they've offended you, you then realize, oh my goodness, they don't need that from me. They need love from me. And so, but really at that point, it's too late to go back. You follow me? It's a tough thing to deal with. Others need our love the most when they deserve it the least. Colossians 3, you've heard this before, 12, verses 12 through 15 says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is perfect bond, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Verses 40, uh, 38 through 42 calls us to go the extra mile for those four people, calls us to live above ordinary lives, and it helps us to, to, to see others the way Jesus wants us to. Verse 44 instructs, instructs to live, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We must see all of this from the perspective of Jesus. And I hope that this parent illustration kind of helped you out a little bit. Point number two, Christ's perspective calls us beyond the ordinary. Living ordinary does not distinguish you as a follower of Jesus. Recently, the Barna group, led by George Barna, he's now retired. There's another guy uh, who leads it now. But the Barna group did a study about the lives of Christians and non-Christians. And so there was many things, that data points that they reached out, many things that they were trying to conclude. But one of the things that they concluded from this study was the fact that they, that they asked that this group of non-Christians, what is it about Christians that makes them different from everyone else? And there were many, many different answers, but there were two dominant answers that, that stuck out to the researchers, to this Barna group. And the two answers that they found out was, one, uh, uh, Christians, one of the ways Christians are different from everyone else is they are, more, they are more likely to attend church, right? So they're more likely to attend church on a regular basis, whatever that looks like, a worship service, small group, whatever it is. They're more likely to do that. That's how they stand out. The second one's a little more painful. Christians are more judgmental than other people. 
Whereas the Bible tells us that Jesus calls us to live beyond the ordinary, extraordinary lives, society views Christians as going to church more and being judgmental. And that's just a, that's just a, that's just a surface level study. Pastor Barry's favorite pastor is Dr. Tony Evans out of Dallas, Texas. First African-American to graduate with a doctorate degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. First African-American to put out a study Bible and a commentary. And in one of his commentaries, he says, God doesn't show kindness only to believers. He extends common grace to all, meaning that there are certain blessings that he gives to all people. Consider this. Verse 45, for he causes the sun, his son to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. So in other words, the sun comes up and the sun comes up both on, on, on Christians and non-Christians. It rains when it rains. The grass in a non-Christian's yard grows just as well as the grass in a Christian's yard. Does that make sense? There are certain blessings that God gives to everyone, believer or not believer, atheist or no atheist, terrorist or no terrorist. There are certain blessings that the Lord gives to everyone, no matter what. But the one thing that's different, the one thing that makes Christians different, the one thing that makes Christians uh, out of the ordinary is the fact that they are called to love people when people don't deserve to be loved. You know, I have found that living an ordinary life comes when life is so chaotic, right, that we, that we get by, we, we try to get by the day, you know, as quickly as possible. If you're not feeling well, you get up in the morning, you're dragging your feet, you, you, you do just enough to get by at work, you do just enough to get by to say, uh, to be civil to people and to your family. Uh, you come home, you just want to take some NyQuil and go to bed, right? Get it all over with. That's just, you're doing just enough to get by, and sometimes that happens. The harsh reality is the fact that, that most of us, our lives are so chaotic and crazy and jam-packed that once we become overwhelmed with life, we live so ordinary because we are so inwardly focused. And when we become so inwardly focused, Christ's perspective goes down the toilet. It's not even there anymore because we are doing just enough for us to get by. So this whole loving other people, this whole you know, divorce stuff, this whole murder in your heart, all this other stuff that Jesus talks about in Scripture and this Sermon on the Mount just kind of goes away because we are just trying to get ourselves right and trying to get by with what's going on with us. But Christ calls us to live beyond the ordinary. Here's number three. Christ's perspective prompts us to experience the perfection of God. Verse 48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Having the opportunity to experience the perfection of God is not being sinless. I know when you read that point, it's probably the first thing you think about. Christ's perspective prompts us to experience the perfection of God. And your first thought is, God, gee whiz, I'm not perfect. Never have been. Just ask my husband or wife, ask my children, ask my coworkers, ask my fellow church members, ask the people in my small group who I open up to. By gosh, I'm not perfect. Never will be until I see Jesus face to face one day. This point right here is it's the one I struggled with the most, but there's an illustration that I'm going to read to you in a moment that's kind of lengthy, but it kind of helps put, the, put what I'm saying in perspective. 
by us living beyond the ordinary, by us loving the unlovable, we get a glimpse of what the perfection of God is like. Not that we become sinless, but not that we become sinless, but rather the power of the Holy Spirit allowing people, allowing you to see people like God sees them. Someone forgiven through the blood of Jesus. Listen to this other quote by Tony Evans. Loving your neighbor doesn't require having warm and fuzzy feelings for him, even though it's a neighbor you don't like. Loving your neighbor doesn't require having warm and fuzzy feelings towards him because that is the absolutely last thing we want to do. It means seeking his well-being. We do this by seeking their best interest as a reflection of God's character. And I've experienced this in my life. When I'm mad at someone, the last thing I want to do is act in their best interest. I don't necessarily want them to die of some disease. I don't, want to, I don't necessarily want them to get sick. I just want them to stay the heck away from me because they're acting like a jerk and I don't want them around me. They're detrimental to my family. They're toxic to my family. I don't want them around. I'm cutting ties with them. Moving on, right? Moving on. But what Tony Evans is kind of telling us in this as he, as he analyzes this text is the fact that, not, that we're not looking to be sinless. We're not looking to be, you know, have these warm and fuzzy feelings and invite them over for Christmas or Thanksgiving or birthday parties or whatever. But we look out for their best interest when we're presented with the example, when we're presented with the opportunity to do so. So if you have a conflict with somebody in your office and you're mad at them, they're considered to be your enemy, you feel like they're toxic in your life, but they want something from you, or they need something from you. And say if you have something that they need that's two documents, one is important, one you know that they need, it's the one they asked for, but there's another document that, that they need as well that would help them with the first one. But you always send them the first one. They've asked you for help, they're an enemy, but looking out for their best interest is sending them both documents that's going to help them. You following me? It's looking out for their best interest when presented with the opportunity to do so. And I'm telling you, sometimes, and I've had this experience in my life, you run into situations where, where you've cut ties with people, you're bitter towards them, the sound of their voice makes you sick. It makes you sick. You don't even want to hear their voice. You don't want to see pictures of the ugly little kids on Facebook. You don't want to do anything. You don't want to do anything. But when you're presented with the opportunity to serve them, you have to take it. If they ask you for something, give it to them. It's a tough thing to do. We experience the perfection of God when we love our enemies and live extraordinary lives because there is not bitterness in our heart. And the reason we cannot be bitter is because the premise on which our bitterness stands, that bitterness is void in the eyes before God because he has conquered the bitterness already. We cannot be bitter because the punishment has already been served to the person who wrongs us. And Jesus Christ took all of that bitterness, all that hate that's in our hearts. He took it upon himself on the cross for us, but more importantly, for that other person. The punishment of people breaking the law has already been laid upon Jesus. 
Guys, there's a story, there's a story, and I'll close with this. There's a story from a guy in Singapore. So the, the, the grammar is kind of, kind of iffy a little bit, but I guess that's just the way, the way they do things over there or the way they, they see things over there. Um, but listen to this. It's kind of lengthy, so bear with me. Have you ever had bitterness rule in your heart? A few years ago, I battled with entrenchment bitterness toward a brother in the faith. We disagreed fundamentally on a biblical, doctrin- on a biblical doctrinal issue. It wasn't my first time to share divergent views with anyone uh, in the faith. However, I had no idea this particular one would sting so badly. Listen, hear me out. We were in a Bible study that I had started about four years ago, and we had a WhatsApp group. Since we hailed from different backgrounds, we had certain divergent views on certain doctrines. In the group, we had a Calvinist and an Arminian. We had pre-tribbers, post-tribbers, and mid-tribbers, referring back to their view of, of how Revelation, how the tribulation is going to pan out. We have those who grew up in a Catholic church, some in an Anglican church, some Pentecostal, and some Baptist. However, despite these differences that would make some people cringe for no mature reason, this group is, the group is united. The beauty of the group is that everyone holds a solid belief in the fundamentals of faith. Salvation by grace through faith alone, the inerrancy of Scripture, the sole mediatorship of Christ to God, the absolute fall of man, the absolute holiness of God, etc. The members are, are followers of Christ first before they are Pentecostals, mid-tribbers, and whatnot. One would hardly notice the differences unless you've been with the group for about a year. The disagreements were civil and respectful and often ended with a truce to research some more, read more, or simply agree or to disagree. Once, I remember, uh, did the disagreements become uncivil. I lost my cool, and we had an emotional toe-to-toe online with my brother uh, in question, whom I call Adam, which is not his real name. Granted, ours was not the only intellectual brawl. There, are many, uh, there were many other discussions in that WhatsApp group with other members that had had their share of heat, but life went on. We'd, agree, we'd meet on Thursdays as a group for coffee and catch up on life and study the Word of God together. If there, was in, if there was any offended brother, we were always quick to apologize and restore friendship. The group, the group grew more friendly as we continued until a storm hit. We've all been there before. A phone call came from Adam, this is the guy that he had an argument with, on a particular weekday morning. I failed to pick it up since I was in the middle of a project at the office. Unbeknownst to me, Adam had reached a bulling point as far as our doctrinal disagreements were concerned. I missed the call, and what followed amazed me. An insult came through via text message. I read it in disbelief and thought it had to be a joke. He sent a series of more insults and derogatory abuses via text message. He called me a matter of nasty names and accused me of being a deceiver doing the work of Freemasons and devil worshipers. I imagine that someone had stolen his phone and was using it to uh, 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 meticulously um, tarnish his name. The The messages kept coming in. My phone could not stop buzzing. Shortly, another member of our Bible study called me. I picked up. He informed me that my brother in question had just called him and told him to stay away from our poisonous doctrine and to also be aware that I was sleeping with his girlfriend. Now it's getting juicy. (laughs) 
My shock kept scaling to new heights. I told my friend of the messages Adam sent me and admitted that he, said, that he had said the very things about me to him via phone. He was just too scared to let me know. I was livid. My, ang- my anger hardly subsided before another member of our study sent me a text message that he had received from my new enemy. The message, that, the message said I was sleeping with his girlfriend as well. Adam finished the message by saying that I had been sleeping with his own girlfriend too, that I'd been sleeping with my own girlfriend too, and he had proof of it. Okay. When my friend asked him for the proof, he was insulted by Adam, and he hung up. I was at my wit's end. I wanted to march him to his house, square it off, verbally or physically, whichever would do the worst damage. Have you ever been there before? I just want justice, right? My friends asked me to not respond, but to pray instead, and that's what I did. However, I could not pray past a minute. Frustration and hurt welded uh, uh, welled up within me. I cried to the Lord that day and prayed psalms of vindication, but my heart wanted something else. I wanted to call him and insult him back. I wanted to take the ma- I wanted to take the case to the police on the grounds of hate speech and defamation. I wanted to call my lawyer, but my friends asked me to be still and to wait on God. The matter was not over. Adam went ahead and wrote a public post on Facebook calling me a devil worshiper and a Freemason. He then claimed that my blood brother Philip could prove all this was claiming, uh, could prove all that he was claiming to be true. Philip, who was online, saw the post and was quick to disagree publicly that none of this was being said. None of this that was being said about me was true. I was called by several people asking me what had transpired between Adam and I. To my surprise, I could find no unwarranted reason, and that made me angrier. Then his mother called me. She pleaded that I ignore everything her son had written and said because, uh, because he was unwell. I wanted to hear none of it. I wanted to see her son suffer for what he was doing to me. I was bitter. I wanted vengeance. The Lord taught me something very important in the season of bitterness. The lessons he taught me are guided from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. I pray that you will examine your heart as well. This is what Hebrews 12, 15 says. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. In other words, in other words, Jesus died for everyone, even the people that you hate, even the people whom speak badly against God or deny him altogether. Jesus died for them too. That's what the first section of the, of the text is saying. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Meaning when someone has wronged you, when presented with the opportunity, serve them. Give them what they want. Look out for their well-being. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it become defiled. Bitterness, bitterness defiles us. Defiles us. He went on to give us three lessons that he learned in this situation. And while I want to share with you the first one, because it has everything to do with, with Matthew chapter 5. If you read Hebrews 12, 15, it tells us that bitterness springs up when we fail to grasp God's grace. Y'all listen to this. You cannot remain bitter at someone without thinking of yourself better than them. When you're better, you often imagine, how dare they do that? Or how can they do that? How could they do that to me? If you really analyze those thoughts, what is really being said is, I am way better than that. 
I could never do what they did. We remain bitter because we, because we deem the offender's mistake to be so grand and unfathomable. Otherwise, if it were small, we'd gloriously ignore it and forgive it. But since we deem the offense to be at a global level, we dwell on it and give attention that, that ISIS and Hurricane Katrina deserves. The problem with it is that we focus on our offended hearts and our victimhood, and we forget God's offended heart. When, we hang, when, when Jesus hang on the cross, it's supposed to be hung. When Jesus hung on the cross, he forgave the mistakes and forewent the bitterness when he said, Father, forgive so-and-so, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus gave the benefit of the doubt for your sins so that you could be saved. In all honesty, when I was hurt by my friend, I felt like praying, Father, strike them, for they know exactly what they're doing. But God allows us to see that we... What, God allowed us to see that we deserve to be on that cross and have no grounds to hold bitterness in our hearts. If we can be forgiven on the cross, it is only morally acceptable to forgive any and every kind of offense towards us. When we forget how much God ought to be angry with us, but he loved us instead, we become bitter with those who have wronged us. I remained bitter at my friend for months because I shifted my focus from the cross onto myself. When the Lord showed me that I had no right to vengeance through his shed blood for me, I realized that the hurt, I realized that the hurt, I realized that the more you, the more hurt you are, the more glorious the cross will become to you. I'm going to read that again because I kept stuttering. That's the work of Satan, by the way. I realized that the more hurt you are, the more glorious the cross will become to you. I'm going to read it again. I realize that the more hurt you are, the more hurt you are, the more glorious the cross will become to you. The more bitter you are, the more wonderful you will realize grace to be. Hurt, listen to this, don't miss this. Hurt and persecution is punishment to the world, but a blessing in disguise to the believer. When we are hurt, when we are persecuted, if we live ordinary lives, we view it as punishment. We feel it as punishment, like we've been punished by someone else. The reality is, hurt and persecution is a blessing in disguise to the believer. But to the world, it's punishment. No wonder non-Christians get so ticked off when things happen to them and have no hope whatsoever for relief and for peace. And some of you may feel that way but if you're anything like me, you, you forget what the Word of God says. And that we we're supposed to live above ordinary lives, that we're supposed to love the unlovable. And when we do that, we can uh, experience the perfection of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Real Church Coweta. I thank you for Matthew chapter 5. Father, your words are piercing to our hearts and souls. Your word changes us. There's no new meaning in Scripture. It has always meant what it meant. And when we read your word and, we, and when the Spirit illuminates the Scripture to us, we learn new things about you. We learn new things about ourselves. We learn new things about life. And so, Father, forgive us when we're stubborn, when we're mean to other people. And, Father, forgive us when we're mean to you. The last thing you want from us is to, for us to be bitter towards you. The last thing you want is for us to be bitter towards other people. And so, Father, in this series, Game Changers, we see something else about the law that has to be reversed, something that has to be turned upside down in order for us to live lives that are 
extraordinary. In order for us to live lives for which when a research group does research on society, in particular Christians, they will see the love of Christ and not judgment. And Father, that's our fault. And Father, we repent, we ask for forgiveness, and we just, help, we just pray that you would help us to be a better light for you in this world. Father, many of the solutions that our world looks for are solutions that are found in your word, are solutions that the Holy Spirit illuminates in Scripture for us. Father, this book that you have blessed us with, this, this canon of Scripture that you've blessed us with is something that, is, that, that you've ordained, something that you've put together, something that's inspired by you, and it's not something that we can take lightly. And so, Father, I pray that we would stick to your word, that we would just take the preemptive strike of making the decision beforehand that we will love other people, be forgiving, and look out for others' best interest, even when they've wronged us. Father, we won't always be given those opportunities, but Father, when we are given those opportunities, I pray that we would do so. We love you so much. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Real Church Coweta. If you have any questions or if you would like to contact us at Real Church, please go to our website at www.realchurchcoweta.com and click on the Contact Us tab. We invite you to join us on Sunday at 11.15 a.m. at the Worship Center on the campus of Central Christian School in Sharpsburg. Also, check out our website or Facebook page for directions. Until next time, God bless, and remember to love God, love others, and live real.